Who is Jesus? What is his mission? We're following Jesus as he builds a movement of misfits traveling through Galilee, bringing good news to the ordinary, broken, confused, and undeserving. Who will choose to follow him? How will he react in the face of conflict? What is the good news of God's kingdom really about? Let's pick up where we left off. Well, hey everyone, we are back in Mark today. We're gonna to continue to follow Jesus in his ministry in Galilee. And prior to now, we've worked through five conflict narratives. And we've seen that as Jesus continues to teach and to heal, both the crowds and the critics show up. And the religious leaders in particular are increasingly annoyed by Jesus' claims and his popularity. In fact, Mark chapter three, verse six, tells us that their opposition is no longer philosophical. They're just beyond complaining about him. They're ready to do something about him. So it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. They're not just looking to destroy his reputation. Other translations of this verse make it more plain that they are plotting how to kill Jesus. Not everyone is happy to see him everywhere he goes. So Jesus moves away from the limelight for a minute. Let's pick up the story in verse seven. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. It doesn't appear that Jesus and his disciples got a lot of rest, but then again, Mark doesn't leave much room for pause in his story. So whether they got an hour of quiet or a whole day, the text tells us that a great crowd followed them. And what is interesting and unique is that Mark notes where this crowd has come from. And you can see on this map, People are traveling great distances. So Galilee is, of course, the region that Jesus calls home. It's where he's been doing ministry so far. He's moving from village to town to sea. Judea is the region just south of Galilee, where the city of Jerusalem is located. Idumea is a region even further south than that. Beyond the Jordan indicates the regions east of the Jordan River, like the Decapolis. And then Tyre and Sidon are towns on the Mediterranean coast north of Galilee in what today is Lebanon. So from north, from south, from east, crowds of people, they're on the move. Now, the Roman roads would have made travel easier, but these people are most likely walking. And let's just know that the shortest route from Jerusalem north to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, that would be a three-day walk. And that's if you went straight through Samaria, which most Jews were not going to do. So the good news of Jesus, it's traveling. Many people, they have been willing to drop what they're doing and walk days, maybe even weeks to find him, looking for healing and hope. That's incredible. So Jesus and his disciples in this moment, they're maybe looking for a day off and instead they find themselves surrounded by hundreds, probably thousands of people. And Jesus is doing what, he's do what he does. He's moving through the crowd. He's giving a healing touch there, sharing a healing word there. And people on the edges, they're desperate to get closer. So everyone's pressing in and Jesus is literally in danger of being crushed. And at this moment, he employs a really creative strategy. He stands or sits down in a boat that's anchored just off, offshore. He's creating this buffer zone between himself and the crowd so that he can teach them and be seen by all of them from a safe distance. Now, before Mark moves on with his story, he's giving us a bit more insight into what's going on in the chaos of the crowd that day. So verses 11 and 12. 
Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So as Jesus is moving through the crowds, and even as he's sitting just offshore in the boat, the demons who are holding lives hostage, they are crying out. They're yelling at Jesus, you are the son of God. That's a true statement. But imagine, imagine hearing that or seeing the contorted face of a possessed man or a woman who's yelling that above the noise. The crowds around them, they came to meet a healer, but these men and women, they don't yet know who Jesus truly is. The Pharisees, they wouldn't even consider that God's Messiah could be God himself come in the flesh. And the disciples know something is compelling them to follow this Jesus who calls himself the Son of Man. But we're going to see time and again that even they don't entirely understand his identity and who he is right now. And so it's remarkable then that aside from God's proclamation over Jesus at his baptism, the truest statement thus far about Jesus' identity comes from demons. But Jesus shuts them up. And why does he do that? Well, Mark doesn't really give us a clear explanation. As we're learning, he's not one to elaborate. He's often leaving us, the readers, to connect the dots while he urgently moves the plot forward. It's like one of those old school projectors where with a click, we just advance to the next scene. And so here, Mark turns our attention from Jesus in a boat on the shore of the Sea of Galilee to Jesus on a mountainside. And what we read next feels totally unconnected. But I think it just might contain an explanation for why Jesus shut up the demons. We're going to start in verse 13. Now, you've probably got a heading that says the 12 apostles or Jesus appoints the 12 or something along those lines. So starting in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Jesus, what he's doing here, he's calling all of his followers to a mountain. We don't know how many followers that was, but from among those who assembled, 12 are specially appointed. And let's quickly identify them. Now, this image that you see, it, it's pulled their likenesses from da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. We have no idea what they look like, but it wasn't this, okay? But Simon Peter, he's always listed first because he's like the leader of the group. And then we've got the brothers James and John. Those three are the inner circle who get some extra time and experiences with Jesus. Peter's brother Andrew is named next. Strangely, he's named Andres in this picture. But that's followed by Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew. Remember, he's the tax collector, also named, known as Levi. Thomas is, of course, the doubter. And then we have the next James, who's often called James the Less. He's possibly Matthew's brother because in Mark's gospel, he calls them both the son of Alphaeus. And rounding out the list are Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, identified as the betrayer. So these 12, they make up the apostles. And this word apostle means messenger or one who is sent on a mission. And when referring specifically to the 12, it means that they are commissioned as the heralds of the good news of Jesus. Remember that the word gospel means good news. And so when a battle was won or Caesar made a proclamation, these messengers would deliver the gospel of victory to cities across the Roman Empire. 
And Jesus is appointing his own messengers of his gospel, the gospel of God's kingdom. And I think that this is what connects the dots from demons to disciples. Because you see, in the crush of the crowd, in all the noise, noise, demons spoke a true statement, you are the son of God. But demons are not the messengers of the gospel. It was not then and never will be the mission or purpose of God's enemies to herald the good news of Jesus. That is a role that is reserved for those who are called and sent by Jesus in his name and in his power. God, he's got a plan to get the good news out, and those demons do not factor into the equation. In fact, let's dig a little bit into this plan of God's because I think this passage actually reveals a pattern that God has used throughout his story in history. I think he's recycling a very old game plan, not because he's out of good ideas, he's doing it on purpose. And the key to tracing this pattern is actually found right here in verses 14 and 16, where it says that Jesus appointed the 12. And the Greek word there is usually translated as made. We've seen it before, actually, in Mark 1, verse 17, when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, he says, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. And what Jesus is really saying is that he's going to make the 12 his messengers, his good news of God's kingdom comes storytellers. In fact, we're going to make that our big idea today. Disciples tell his story. These first 12, they're going to learn what that meant. And we're going to learn right alongside them as we continue working our way through Mark. So don't think this is just a big idea for them. The 12, well, they begin multiplying themselves as early as Mark chapter 6, and it continues to this very day. So this is a job description for all Jesus followers in all times and places. Disciples tell his story. And like I said, this isn't a new idea. This is not the first time that God has called his created people, making them his messengers and heralds of good news. Jesus is doing something new, but he's also following the pattern of God since creation. And it's a pattern of creating, calling, and sending. Let's briefly trace that pattern. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates Adam and Eve, and he calls them to a special relationship with himself and with one another and with the entire creation. And his command to them is to multiply. He sends them out in order to bring peace and order what they see in the garden, to bring that peace and order into the whole world, even as they increase and multiply their family. And we know that sin really rocked the boat on this perfect plan. But even after the fall, God still sent Adam and Eve into the world, promising that eventually a son of the woman would crush their enemy. Adam and Eve's sin, it broke their story, but it didn't break God's. It's like God was saying, hey, Eve, tell your sons and daughters this good news that God will one day restore and redeem what's been broken. And then in Abraham, we see a man, one man called by God to come out of his country and to settle in a foreign land. And Abraham followed God there. It's actually the very land that Jesus is now walking. And God pointed to the sky and he promised Abraham that his descendants would be more than the stars and that this land would belong to them and that God would bless the whole world through this people. You get what God is doing? He made Adam and Eve from nothing. And from one old man, God will make a nation, a chosen people. And they're going to be his messengers. They're going to be his sent ones. And the way that they live and the stories that they tell, it's going to reveal God to the nations. In that growth from one old couple to a nation, Jacob had 12 sons from whom God makes the 12 tribes. And throughout all the many generations of the story, sin's always going to get in the way. But God will always faithfully move the story forward, generation to generation, until one day a son will crush the enemy. 
It's as slaves in Egypt that the descendants of Abraham and Jacob grow into a great nation. And again, God calls one man, Moses, and sends him as a messenger to Pharaoh, as the savior of his people. God's promises people a land, and it's time they got moving. Before they get there, though, he calls those 12 tribes to a mountain in the wilderness. And God gives them his story, gives them his law, his covenant, his promises, and his warnings. And there in the wilderness, they're reminded that they are a people who have been created by God called out from among the nations and then sent into a promised land for the very purpose of receiving and then extending the blessings of God. Isaiah is gonna remind these people again, many centuries and many sins later, Isaiah will say, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen. So from one man and one woman, God made all the peoples. From Abraham and Sarah, God made a nation. From the 12 sons of Jacob, God made the tribes of Israel. And every time God creates, he calls and sends his witnesses. And all of that creating and calling and sending, it has been pointing forward to this very moment when Jesus stands on this mountain and he creates again. And this time it's a band of 12 apostles from whom he will build his church. Now one of the 12 is going to betray him in the worst way. That's not going to end Jesus' mission. It's not going to thwart God's story because the message will spread on the feet of many, many, many witnesses created, called, and sent into the whole world. So the pattern that we see here is literally as old as time, but God is leveling it up through Jesus, starting with these 12 extraordinarily ordinary guys. You and I would have maybe vetted them a little more closely, to be honest. I mean, because these aren't straight-A students. They're not the wealthiest. They're not from the best families. They're a diverse group, a motley crew. We've got a zealot. Today, we'd probably call him a nationalist. We've got a collaborator who's working with the Roman oppressors, several blue-collar fishermen, at least one seriously questionable character in charge of the money bag. Like Abraham, like all of his descendants, these are ordinary, sinful men. But when God is writing the story, we know that the ordinary becomes extraordinary. It doesn't generally happen overnight, right? 11 of these men, they're gonna be part of building the kingdom of God, but they've got a whole lot of learning to do. And what they begin here at the feet of Jesus, they're gonna model and pass on to future disciples who are gonna model it and pass it on to future disciples who do the same for future disciples all down the line until, well, until a handful of Swedish immigrants plant a church called Grace in Erie, Pennsylvania in the 1890s. Isn't it amazing? 2,000 years after Jesus appointed the 12, God is still building his church, calling his people, and sending them as his witnesses. The job description remains. The disciples will tell his story. And let's see how all of that begins as Jesus makes the first 12 in verses 14 and 15. It says, He appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We see here two main components of a disciple's job description, and then there are two more like subcomponents nestled under the second. So first it says they are appointed to be with him. This is perhaps the key distinction that sets them apart from the crowds who follow Jesus. It's their calling to his presence. They're invited into intimate fellowship with their creator, Lord and savior. There were a lot of other followers, men and women and family, and they got to spend time with Jesus, but these 12 had a unique place in his presence. They were upfront witnesses to his life and teaching and miracles. 
Three of them were named to the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, going where no one else would go. For example, those three were on the mountain at the transfiguration. And when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from death, these three alone accompany him to her sickbed. And for all 12, this up-close and personal vantage point, it gives them access to see and hear and smell and experience the story, the kingdom of God coming and turning the world upside down. I don't know about you, I'd love to get in a time machine and go be a follower of Jesus as he walked on the earth. Unfortunately, that's not been invented yet, but you and I were not left out. That's the coolest part of this whole thing. Mark is giving us a record of how it all began, and he knew, as he was writing, just as we know as we are reading, that being with Jesus doesn't end with the 12 apostles. After Jesus walked out of the grave and before he ascended to heaven, he stood on a mountain, and he commissioned disciples to make more disciples, and he said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So practically speaking, what does this mean for us? Well, our embodied Savior, he might not be sitting in the chair right next to you, but he has made a way for you and for me to be in his presence at all times. He's with you. He's with you. Throughout the scriptures, the promise of his presence often accompanies phrases like, do not be afraid or peace be with you or be strong. To be a disciple is to be with him. In some seasons, I will actually set an alarm on my phone that goes off at a time that I know I'm going to be in the car or waiting in the school pickup line, for example. And that alarm just reminds me to take a deep breath and remember that he's with me. I love these words from Brother Lawrence, a 17th century monk. He wrote, he is always near you and with you. Leave him not alone. Now, there's actually got to be more to the job description because just Being with someone all the time is the definition of a groupie, and Jesus is not creating a gaggle of groupies. He's following God's pattern of creating a people who are called and sent. And so the disciples are with him. They're receiving all the blessings found in his presence so that they can be part of God's grand plan. Because remember, the call of God's people has always been that they would share the blessings of knowing God with all the nations. And so the second component of a disciple's job description is to be sent. In this next phase of their training, Jesus is going to send them out. Because disciples don't just sit in the presence of Jesus. Disciples have purpose and disciples have mission. So in Mark 6, we see Jesus send out these 12 and they go two by two. And then in Luke 10, it tells us that he sent out a group of 72. And those are also sent out two by two. At the end of Matthew, we'll read the Great Commission, and and in the book of Acts, we'll see the rapid multiplication of the church, demonstrating that the exponential power of the good news is spread by hundreds and thousands of Jesus followers. Now, you've heard the Christian-y expression, I'm sure, that we are to be in but not of the world, right? A few weeks ago at the annual celebration, Pastor Derek gave us a more accurate version of this. The phrase originates in John chapter 17, but somehow it got messed up and it doesn't actually reflect what Jesus was praying. So in John 17, Jesus prays, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we should actually be saying that we are not of the world, but sent into the world. Because you see, you're a citizen of God's kingdom, and you're taking God's kingdom story into the world. 
And that leads us to the two components of a disciple's job description that are, that are nestled under being sent. Because for what purpose, what mission is Jesus creating these 12 apostles, these 12 messengers? What will the mission be as he sends them and then sends the 72 and then sends 120 and then sends all of us? Well, we are sent as ambassadors of the good news. We are sent to tell his story. Verse 14 uses the word preach, and that means sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's the promised Messiah, that he's the Savior, he's the Son of God, he's the King of Kings, he's the fulfillment of every covenant, and he's the author of a better story. All of Jesus' Jewish followers, they had at least a working knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. However, it was in the company of Jesus that they truly learned the story of those scriptures. They learned to see God's story as fulfilled in Jesus. They learned to understand their place in God's story as followers who were created, called, and sent on God's mission. In the short time they had with Jesus, they saw the kingdom of God. They experienced the reality of God's better story. The good news became real and tangible. The kind of good news that brings real hope to the hopeless and real healing to the broken. To the ashamed and the guilty, the good news brings real forgiveness. To the angry and bitter, it brings peace. To the arrogant and powerful, it brings humility and submission. To all the lies, the the gospel of Jesus will bring the truth. To the fearful, it will bring courage. To the defeated, it brings victory. And to the weary, it brings strength. To the dying, it brings real life. To every single person who would receive him, Jesus will bring transforming power. And so when Jesus stood on a mountain before he ascended and he gives his disciples the Great Commission, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. They knew that meant that with their very words and with their very lives, they must tell his story. One specific example leaps right off the page of Mark 3. Jesus called 12 unlikely men to this unique brotherhood. And among their differences, Jesus taught them unity and patience and forgiveness and forbearance and how to love one another, even Judas. Had he taught them nothing else, this was a world-changing lifestyle. It was just the beginning. The diversity and differences, well, they were going to magnify enormously following Pentecost and Acts. But they knew, they knew this was part of God's story because Jesus had taught them and they would teach the church. Now, the second task that Jesus sent out the 12 to accomplish was to have authority to cast out demons. Talk about a superpower. Here, we're reminded that there is a cosmic conflict. There is a war raging that we can't see. And with Jesus coming in the flesh, that war was intensifying. No way that Satan was going to let God just win. He's coming at Jesus and he's coming at God's people. Now, we know, we know Satan doesn't win. Then, nor will he win now. Because at the cross, Jesus defeated the enemy of their souls. But prior to the cross, what we see here is Jesus sending a message to Satan one life at a time. You will not hold my people captive forever. You hold no power over my sons and daughters. I created them. I formed them. I breathed life into them. And I have planned good things for them. And they will be with me forever. You will not win. And by sharing this authority to speak Jesus over the enemy of our souls, Jesus is giving the 12 a front row seat to witness chains being broken and souls set free. It's the power of darkness defeated by the light of Christ. I've always been amazed that Jesus not only declared, I am the light of the world, but then he also said, you are the light of the world. He said a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And really, this is just another facet of that creating, calling, and sending pattern throughout God's story. Because you see, the 12 
They're in it at the beginning. They're at the beginning of seeing Israel's role fulfilled. Jerusalem was the city on a hill. And its light was always meant to draw the nations out of the darkness. So here's what Jesus does. He starts by driving the darkness out of this promised land one life at a time. And after his resurrection, those 12 apostles and all the disciples, they're going to move out from that city on a hill. And they're going to take the light to many other cities and many other hills so that the message and the messengers soon multiply and expand to all the nations. Jesus tells him in Acts 1.8, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Son of God has crushed the enemy. The people of God will be a light for the nations and the light of Christ in them will push back the darkness. The kingdom of God will rule and reign in every single life set, th set free. This is God's plan from creation and it's happening and we're a part of it. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Sending me, sending you, sending every ordinary follower, just like the 12, and then the 72, and then the 120. We're his disciples. And do you know what disciples do? We tell his story. So practically speaking, what does it mean to be sent by Jesus in 2023? What does it look like for today's disciples to tell his story? I think it looks a lot like what it did for the first 12. It's, it's the teaching others all that Jesus has taught you and doing that through your words, of course, but also through your very life, with your actions, with your kindness, with your work, with your play, with your character, with your choices, with your priorities, with your Sundays and Mondays and every days. It's bringing the light of God's story to the places you live and the people around you one day at a time, one act of kindness, one act of love or forgiveness at a time, one I'm sorry at a time, one story at a time. As a next step, let's ask ourselves the ordinary hero's discipleship question. What's my next small step of obedience? And follow that was with how does my life tell God's story? I'm reminded of how one man told the story. He'd been born blind and Jesus' touch restored his sight. And when he was asked to explain what happened, he couldn't explain everything. But he knew enough to confidently say, one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. So what's God's story in your life? Were you lost and now you're found? Were you addicted and now you're free? Were you a slave to your anger and now you have a spirit of self-control? Were you struggling to find yourself and now you know that you are a son or daughter of the risen King? I once was, but now I am. That's the light of Christ in you. And together, together we are a city on a hill and we're going to tell God's story to the nations. I want to close with these words from the prophet Isaiah. Because your story is in, those, in these words. And my story is in these words. And your neighbor's story and your friend's story. It's, it's God's very good story in these words. It's a story that began in the garden and was fulfilled by Jesus. And it's carried in the hearts and mouths of many, many messengers. In Isaiah chapter 9, he wrote, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Amen.